Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 44th blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that just had a baby and still showed up to fill your pockets. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone, and a special congratulations to James this week, who had a child uh, about 35, 40 minutes ago. Uh, so good job. I hope you're not glad you're not too sore to record. Uh, join the uh, join the elite ranks of the magic MTG dads, as they seem to be called. Yeah. And uh, Alara Chilcott is doing uh, is healthy and uh, and looking very wise in her crib, regal in her many donated gifts and accoutrement from friends and family. So mother and baby are both uh, both in great health and we're all pretty stoked over here. Yeah, I I bet. And uh, I'm looking forward to the birth of your inevitable son, Jund. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, I did notice that the Knights of Alara proofs. Um, are available uh, on the artist website. So I think I'm going to be buying up a bunch of those and using them as invitations for godparent type status for our various friends and family. Yeah, you could also send them as uh, gifts and pretend they're, emo- they're you know, sentimental, but are really cheap. So <laughs> a couple angles with it. <laughs> we'll figure um, it out. Yeah. Uh, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So, Travis, other than my beautiful n- new magic-related child, uh, what's on the agenda this week? Well, this week we have uh, four segments. Segment one is our top movers. We will be looking at the cards that have seen the largest changes in price this past week. Segment two is our cards to watch. These are uh, where James and I will talk about some of the cards we think will be seeing uh, price swings. Segment three is our metagame week in review. Uh, we have two events that we can cover this week. There is Grand Prix Chiba, which was a legacy GP over in Japan. And the World Magic Cup was two weeks ago, and that was a unified modern format. So we can look at either of those. Um, and then segment four, our topic of the week, we're going to touch briefly on some uh, some theoretical standard models of uh, card distribution, uh, just sort of a thought exercise. Um, so uh, let's start off on top movers, our card of the week. I'll take this one. The first card is Sleight of Hand um, from 9th edition. We're looking at the foils. So foil 9th edition Sleight of Hand started the week at around 25. It's around 50 bucks right now. As best as I can tell, this is just a supply thing. Foil sleight of hands have been hard to come by for a long time now, and somebody must have just grabbed the last cheapest one, I believe. Do you have a better idea? I mean, people probably don't realize that though this has seen several printings, they were in things like Portal Second Age and Starter 1999, and they didn't have foils. Um, Then there's a a 7th edition foil, and the ninth is kind of like the second most uh, coveted version. Um, The... The ninth edition uh, foils are looking like the lowest priced uh, uh, copy might be somewhere around $75 on TCG right now. Um, but there's a seventh edition foil um, in and around the $40 range. So it's not clear to me uh, how much of this new plateau can be held. Um, but there are, it's certainly uh, true that there are very few copies of either foil copy anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is one of those foils that's just going to be 
outrageously expensive until they finally reprint it in like modern masters next year and then suddenly they're twelve dollars and then they reprint it again and then again and then again and then they're four dollar foils because that's what wizards does um yeah, i mean i don't know i don't know if this kind of if this kind of uh card selection is going to see a reprint anytime soon but it can certainly be slipped into a number of supplemental products where they don't really have to worry about power level or you know uh style of play or that they're trying you know metagames that they're trying to promote or create so it's not invulnerable. Um, I certainly wouldn't be holding them on a five to 10 year horizon, hoping that this will become infinity expensive. Uh, I think if I was lucky enough to have one of these just lying around and I could out it anywhere over $40, I'd probably be pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, okay. So what's our next card? Uh, the next one's near and dear to my heart. Cause I had a bunch of these sitting around um, that I bought in on at four to $5. This is the foil copies of anger of the gods, the Theros sweeper that's been increasingly important in modern, um, especially against decks like dredge and infect um, where you need to make sure that the creatures are exiled when they die um, and aren't going to be coming back to haunt you later. Um, the, Copies are sitting in at around $20 at this point. This is the second time we've reported on it in a month. Um, the card has not only held the earlier plateau around 15 but pushed it a little further. Um, the reality is that it's a single printing card. It's only ever seen foil uh, one time. Unlikely to see a reprint until perhaps Modern Masters 2019. Um, and as such, these might have some legs there. I could see this card ending up in the $30 range since there just isn't any other supply lying around. And it's not the kind of card that anybody's going to be cracking boxes of Theros trying to trying to dig for. You think we could see $30, $30 foils here on this one then? It's a it's a modern playable foil rare that occasionally is played in the main and often in the sideboard as a two of and shows up in several different decks that are running red. And so long as Blood Moon is in the format, we're going to see um, a continuing pl- proliferation of approaches to abusing the card. Um, and Anger of the Gods often has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I can't disagree with that. I think if the next banning cycle or one of the forthcoming ban cycles uh, in the next year results in a dramatic weakening or elimination of dredge and or infect from the format, then the card certainly gets worse. And I don't think you want to be holding it in just any old metagame. Um, you really want to want to be um, holding that card uh, in foil on the on the premise that there are enough decks that it punishes that you can it will see persistent demand um and that is not a guaranteed state with this card the way that uh you know something like lightning bolt or path to exile um you know it's, it's not the same class of card that is going to be infinitely uh in demand in that format so long as it's in print yeah if there aren't creatures that you really really care about exiling it becomes much less interesting yep so i mean uh like i said i was in on this at five i I've already been selling out copies in the 15 to $20 range. I'm happy to get out at that level. If I'm still holding any and it pushes a little higher, all the better. Okay. Uh, all right, let's move on. Our next card is Statecraft from Mercadian Masks. We're looking at the non-foil copy here. It went from $4 to around $10 for um, 150%. This is another one that I, I don't have a good a good grasp on what might have happened here. Um, I assume it's related to Commander 14. It's an enchantment that prevents all combat damage that would be dealt to and dealt by creatures you control. 
uh, I really, it's hard for me to get a beat on this one. I mean, I guess this would be good in a Planeswalker heavy deck where you could run lots of creatures to block and, and mostly uh, play safe defense, but yeah, I'm not exactly sure. What I am sure of is there are no near mint copies on TCG player uh, aside from one foil. Um, there are zero near mint non-foil copies um, and a couple of foil plate copies. So the price does seem to have, uh, there's, the, the, the copies seem to have been sucked out of the market for the time being, although the market price is showing, you know, a little under three bucks. So it doesn't look like uh, it has really shifted that much so far. Um, I don't know. Do you have any better ideas here? Yeah, we talked about this again a few weeks ago, um, and it was you know pretty much the same discussion. It sees play in, in a variety of EDH decks. Uh, it certainly has some potential in a five color Super Friends brew. Now that you can you can uh, play like four color uh, EDH decks relatively easily with some of these new commanders, um, and it's a card that hasn't been reprinted in infinity years. And uh, believe it or not, in this era of constant reprints, there are still plenty of cards who uh, have have either never seen a reprint or haven't seen a reprint in a long time. And this just happens to be one of them. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to take the next one. This is a <laughs> you card near, near and dear to my heart. You had your daughter. I have this card. <laughs> uh the next card on our list is uh restore balance we are looking at the foils from future site um they started the week at just about ten dollars and they're around 25 on tcg player right now uh this is coming from a few places supply on this has been very low for a while ari lax has been talking up the deck here and there he played it to uh pretty reasonable success at a recent event of the which one it was escapes me um in general, supply has just been very low. We're starting to see the deck perform well at the fringes. Some pros are talking about it. Uh, and I think that this, I believe that the foils at $10 selling out were the case of people getting in on their on copies while they still could. I don't think this was necessarily like demand from players who are building the deck, but rather people like James and I who are like, oh, you know, I don't have any of these foils at $10. They're still pretty cheap. I'm going to grab some. Um, so I think that's where this is right now, although... Uh, anyone who reads reads my articles or listens to me knows that I have quite a stack of these, uh, full disclosure. Um, and I do believe that this is primed for a pretty good pop uh, somewhere within the next six months. Well, the other thing that might be going on here is that there was this um, unexpected leak of a couple of cards from Aether Revolt, uh, the set that's coming out in uh, the early days of winter 2017 as the follow-up to Kaladesh. And the, one of the sorceries that was revealed is a sorcery that's two black black called Yeheni's Expertise, where all creatures get minus three, minus three until end of turn. And it has the, the additional uh, card text, unbelievably, I can't believe this is actually a card they're going to print. You may cast a card with converted mana cost three or less from your hand without paying its mana cost. So at first glance, it seems totally busted. Um, then you start thinking about it and realize that it's A, a sorcery. So there's a bunch of situations where you don't want to cast cards out of your hand that cost three or less off of that. For instance, very rarely are you casting a counter spell in response to casting a sorcery. Um, but it lets you cast things like Abrupt Decays, Kitchen Finks, Lilian of the Veil. Um, and especially the Suspend cards are all viable targets, right? Because uh, Greater Gargadon, Restore Balance, and... Uh, ancestral vision can all be cast for free off this thing you are you are uh reading my pick of the week discussion right now (laughs) (laughs) 
My like this, is all, this is exactly the conversation I was going to have during the pick of the week section was talking about this. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I've seen some, ch- I mean, it's not like it's my original idea. There was plenty of chatter no. uh, in the MTG finance Twitter sphere and, and across the magic community as the card was revealed. Um, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure how and if it fits in modern minus three, minus three, um, despite being relatively similar to Anger of the Gods, uh, casting a, the full four and not being a total sweeper like Damnation seems like a real weakness. Um, and and maybe this is, you know, this has been done intentionally to make sure that this is primarily a standard card. Um, but you you know that that's this is going to get Brewer's juices flowing. Um, and on that reason alone, especially with cards like Greater Gargadon and Restore Balance and Ancestral Vision, they were already kind of on the cusp of seeing uh, enough play in modern to justify potential investment. Um, you know, for all the reasons you already listed, and in the case of Restore Balance, um, this is the kind of, you know, pre-spoiler hype that can drive new plateaus on cards as inventory drives up, uh, dries up from speculation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you got next for us? So the other one making big moves off the back of Atraxa, who is now officially the most popular general on EDHREC.com. Uh, um, this is the new general, four-color general out of Commander 2016, who's a 4-4 flying vigilance death touch lifelink. But the important part of that card is that at the beginning of your end step, you proliferate, which is a keyword that takes uh, any and all permanents that you control. And if they have a counter on them of any type, you get to give them another counter. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different cards that that works well with. And one of them happens to be doubling season, which is kind of the granddaddy of, um, you know, big ticket casual demand cards. Um, beloved by counter-based brewers everywhere for years on end, got a reprint, got a judge promo foil, and still we're seeing the MMA foils go from 56 to almost $150 this week. Um, that's almost 170% gain off of a $50 plus plateau, which is not something you see every week in MTG Finance. Um, who knows if it can hold that plateau and for how long? Doubling Season is exactly the kind of card I would fear seeing yet another reprint. It could easily show up in uh, Modern Masters 2017 next spring. And if you can get out of the card anywhere near $100 plus or even 80 or 90 I think you count yourself lucky and move on. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Um, that the the this price is is pretty wild right now. I don't think foils are going to stay in that range. Although we have seen a wholesale move on prices on doubling season lately, um, it, it does seem to be normalizing again. Uh, you know, this is a card that's had low stock for quite some time, so it's not like th- this isn't the type of card where you see. It gets so bought out on TCG Player, and then there's all of these copies left out in the wild to sort of fill the inventory back up and bring the price down. Uh, TCG Player isn't going to our stock. I mean, there's going to be very few additional copies for it, relative to like you know if somebody bought out Beck and Call or something like that. Yeah. Um, so so this price is you know when cards like this move, they they move. Uh, so I agree with you. You know, 150 dollars for the foils. I'm not eager. I'm not holding my breath for those for that number, but uh, I do think we are seeing a permanent shift move, from permanent move north here. And and I think what we've seen since the coming of Commander 2016 is just how strong the Commander community is, and how valid you know our compatriot Jason Alt's articles about EDH finance have been for the, the last few years in terms of. Pre- predicting um, the movement that that format can generate, despite the fact that these decks only run a single copy of any given card. 
we're getting to the point where that community is developed enough and people have enough decks that whereas a modern player might have one or two decks and might have four copies of various play sets of cards, an EDH player with key cards, things like Soul Ring, um, they might have you know five to ten copies of a card. And so the fact that there's only one in any given deck, uh, you know, don't be tricked. These are still cards that can go big, and especially when they're in a position like doubling season where, yeah, it was reprinted in Modern Masters, but that was Modern Masters 2013, and it's almost 2017 now. So if it doesn't show up in 2017, and it doesn't see a reprint during the coming year, then it can absolutely hold this plateau. Because I think that if you were to ask EDH players, what are the top 10 most iconic cards in the format? I have to guess that doubling season makes that list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as an as a casual EDH, as if there's any other kind, as a casual EDH player myself, I agree. Doubling season is like is almost the banner card for what EDH is. Yeah, I mean, the, the ability to to swing big with a, a something that doesn't affect the board immediately, and then do a bunch of busted things on subsequent turns is is definitely what I'm into the format for. And you know, any deck I've ever played with doubling season when it was on the table, it's been nothing but fun at least for me, not so much for my opponents. Um, and there's just there's so many more opportunities now that four color, three and four color decks are that much easier uh, after the coming of 20, Commander 2016. Right, right. Um, okay. Uh, all right, next card is Arkham Dagson. Uh, Ar- Arkham Dagson, Arkham Dagson, whatever. <laughs> He's a legend from Cold Snap, uh, started so he's st- this is showing that he started the week around eight and a, eight and a half um i think he realistically he started the week at like two or three bucks um and he's now up in the the 20 dollar range uh this is a guy who flips artifacts around he's a blue legend that, that moves some artifacts from graveyards searches for them whatever who cares uh, what's important is he has works very, very well with Brea, the one of the new commanders. So um, unsurprisingly, across the board, we're seeing the Commander 14 commanders push a variety of cards. We saw this um, very notably. Uh, yeah, 2016. So oh, somebody saw him. Um, we saw this happen uh, dramatically with Nekusar back a year or two ago. It's happening again. Arkham is one of these cards. Um, because he, you can sacrifice an art, artifact to tutor for one and put it in the play, um, non-creature. So very powerful in that deck uh, with your commander generating artifact tokens and doing all sorts of stuff. It's it's just a very grindy engine that also lets you go get um, big combo pieces. It is just gone. There are no near mint copies left on TCG Player. I had two. I listed them at 1050 during at the beginning of the spike, and they both sold immediately. And there are no cop, no near mint copies. Period. The lightly played copies are over twenty dollars. I don't know where this is going to settle at this point. I would guess it's between ten and fifteen once all is said and done. Um, but his price has definitely permanently shifted. Yeah. So credit where credit is due again to Jason Alt, who called yeah, this no right, up, right up front when Brea was revealed. Um, you know it. it, it and it's a great example of how being fully in touch with a specific format will increase your yield in speculation. The more you test, the more you play, the better your specs will be. And I can't stress that enough. I think it's super, super important and something that's often overlooked. And, you know, Jason and some of the other EDH guys, you know, threw the flag up pretty quick. And guys like me responded to that and started buying some. I think I got five or six copies in and around $8 uh, a couple weeks back. And, you know, didn't go super deep because I didn't really have a feel for the Brea decks and I haven't been building an EDH for months. 
um, but trusted the the people that were talking about it enough to you know break off a few as the flurry continued. And now that we're where we're at, and I've really had time to think about it, I think this card can hit thirty dollars. Um, hmm. th- there are no other printings. Um, it was printed over a decade ago. Um, it's very unlikely to show up in a supplemental product throughout the rest of this year. Although I would I would guess that it has a pretty good shot at showing up in Commander twenty seventeen. Um, now that there's some pretty good reasons for it to be reprinted. Um, but just the, the, the power level of the fact that Brea comes into play, drops two uh, Thopter artifact creature tokens onto the battlefield, and immediately turns on Arkham and lets him swap that out for um, any non-creature artifact card in their deck and put it straight into play, basically makes him a repeatable tutor effect. And I think we can both agree that that is a very powerful place to be in EDH, and that the demand will probably be persistent. And given that um, Brea is the second most popular um, commander on EDH rec this week after Atraxa, um, and the the current level of inventory, um, I will not at all be surprised three to six months out to see this as a thirty dollars card. It is definitely powerful. Its price is permanently moved. I am not at thirty dollars with you. I don't think, but uh, I can agree with you that it is more than it was. <laughs> two days ago <laughs> um so i mean i you know if you if so, you have copies at 15 and you want to wait that's fine i don't think you're going to get punished very badly so here's the thing on tcg right now there's no near mint copies lightly played we have three copies two listed at 21.99 and one listed at 24.72 so unless there's a rush of inventory and i don't know where that comes from because i think this is this kind of card is the poster child for the concept of attrition that we've championed before, where given enough time, it really doesn't matter how much of a card you printed, because most of it will be hidden in people's closets and under beds, and they're not going to remember that they have a single copy of it lying around somewhere, and they're not going to run and and pull it out and suddenly drop it off at the store for store credit. It's just going to keep sitting where it always was. And occasionally it'll cycle into the store in collections, and it'll get thrown up on TCG or eBay or whatever, but the demand will be faster than the supply. And, and those are the kind of situations where I, I can see it setting up shop higher. Uh, you know, I, my concern here is that this card has lived at a pretty low price for a long time. So you can go all the way back to 2011 and this card was under a dollar. Um, yep. You know, it was five, it was five to six bucks uh, earlier this year. So, I mean, there's been growth, right? Like you would have already done really well. I guess my, my concern is, with $30 specifically, it's just I have seen cards like this explode dramatically. You get all excited. You're like, wow, this could keep going. It's great, blah, blah, blah. And then like you, you realize there aren't quite that many people need it as you thought. Um, you know, Arkham Dagson was the kind of card that was probably kind of hanging out in people's binders and boxes for the time being. Six Six bucks is, is not nothing, but it's not necessarily enough to like go through the effort of trying to get rid of it. So I think there's probably a fair bit of inventory, as much as there could be for a Cold Snap Rare kind of still floating around out there. Now, if this fills up TCG player and then it gets bought out again, I mean, that's another whole story. But I, I think that we haven't seen all of the copies make it back to the market yet. Um, and there aren't a lot of EDH rares in this era uh, that can really sustain a price like that. Um, 
it's also worth noting that it's also worth noting that it does serve a very specific function in a very specific subset of commander decks it's not soul ring it doesn't just go into any deck you really need to have a persistent artifact theme and good reasons to go get non-creature artifacts so yeah all, all of that is true yeah, I mean that that that's and that's not, that's mostly where I come from. Is just you're like you you ha- not you have to be in blue, and then you have to want this specific, very specific effect. Um, which which there's plenty of people that do. And God, now that Bray is out there, there's certainly a lot more of them. I guess this is a type of card that feels like it's going to be eighty percent in one commander. Um, which just it makes it a little harder for me to think it's going to be that much, as opposed to doubling season, which is like okay, if you're in green, you probably want this card. Um. I mean, for those of us yeah. that got in at eight bucks, you can get out with 125% plus easy after expenses right now um, and yeah. probably yeah. move your copies pretty quick. Um, that's nothing to sneeze at. You shouldn't leave that money on the table if you're in doubt. But if you end up holding some, I have a feeling you'll be pleasantly surprised because I can almost guarantee we're going to be calling this with another 30 to 35% gain somewhere within the next two months. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna get you're not gonna get punished holding onto this right now. I mean, what you you might you could probably sell near mint copies for fifteen, sixteen, um, and I mean, what's the worst case scenario? It sinks down to twelve. You know, you might you leave a couple dollars on the table possibly, but the flip side of that is it could spike again, and maybe you get to sell it at twenty five. So uh, you're not you're not gonna get punished if you sit on it for a little while. And I think ultimately, it's the difference between what I would refer to as a hype driven spike. So something like Olivia mobilized for war when people thought Black Red Madness was going to be a thing based on some of the early spoilers for Shadows Over Innistrad, um, and then later Eldritch Moon, um, verse where where people presumed performance, but it didn't show up, it didn't manifest, versus something like this, which is what I would call a card being turned on, meaning that it was relatively useless in the format in question. And then a card is printed that suddenly turns it on. It, it makes it significantly better, at least in the deck in question. And what used to be a totally worthless card suddenly becomes uh, a de facto include in the deck. And then it's just a matter of adding up the copies and comparing it to the number of players that are going to run Brea this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay, I think we've beat Arkham to death here. Yep. He's been clubbed um, with a large icicle. Yeah. All right. Do you want to take the next card here? Sure. So uh, we're seeing additional movement in Koth of the Hammer Foils, specifically the Scars of Mirrodin edition, which is the original pack foil edition, moving from $17 to $65. Um, real happy to have a, to be have some Koths sitting around in my like casual Planeswalker binder at this point. And you know, I love these moments as a Magic player um, where the player version or the the casual um, demand where you just bought some cards randomly that you never intended to be uh, worth anything suddenly becomes worth something because somebody figures out a brilliant new deck in modern. I mean, it doesn't really get any better than that. It just feels like free money. Um, seeing this card up almost 282%, it's definitely worth noting that uh, Scred is still putting up performances in modern. It, the deck is not uh, exactly flash in the pan. Um, it's by no means a staple yet, but more and more people are taking notice of the deck, and it seems to have a lot of game in the current metagame. Um, it's worth pointing out that the dual deck foil version of Koth is still easily available at $12, and if you can live with the foiling process on those, it arguably has better art. Um, and I suspect that it will make a move once the the copies of the pack foil get high enough quite possible i was wondering about that myself actually when i was looking at this where the uh what the dual deck copy was doing 
yeah, I mean, the, the inventory on those is getting pretty low. Like um, something like thirty or thirty-five or forty results uh, in near mint uh, foil. Um, so, I mean, sorry, yeah, they're all foil. <laughs> so, and <laughs> and I'm only seeing like. 12 listings near mint now and they start in and around 12 bucks and pretty quickly they go up to 20 so um you know it's not a p- my pick of the week but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on because if cough keeps moving um i think it drags this one up as well uh yeah quite possible quite possible wouldn't wouldn't argue that also and i want to point out that scrad is this guy didn't come up with scrad scrad red's been around for years yeah, yeah. i mean the, i mean certainly the the addition of a few key cards from recent sets um, has made it that much better. And I'm not sure that they always ran Blood Moon Main as opposed to Side. Um, and they certainly didn't have Chandra Torch of Defiance um, to fool around True. with. But True. Uh, yes, there there have been versions of Scred um, with inferior card selection um, for years. And it was largely written off as kind of a silly nonsense deck. And I think even when it was on camera winning that, t- that first tournament a few weeks back, people were still kind of looking at it askew as though it was uh, a mistake of some kind. I don't think we're past that even now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it top eight it again just a couple of weeks later. So, um, you know, it, we're at the point where you have to at least admit that it could be the next Lantern Control. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's probably a fair uh, correlation because nobody took Lantern seriously first either. And now it's a pretty major part of the format although that picked up i feel like that picked up a really important card like the deck kind of showed up and like won an event and then like they printed something shortly thereafter that like really pushed it although i don't remember what mm. maybe i'm just making stuff up no, no you're right thought- like some of the weaker pieces in the deck provided the redundancy necessary for it to be turned on um it was a couple of crappy artifacts whose names escape me but are necessary to make sure that it can get there because uh, Lantern um, for which the deck is named was available from the Kamigawa block, but had never had any, nobody had ever had any reason to to own any copies. Um, And it was the the printing of a couple of new cheap artifacts that let you fool around with the top of people's decks that got us there. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at one of the lists from the WMC and the artifact suite itself is all, pretty old uh it did pick up collective brutality which is good um it got blooming marsh and kaladesh it got inventors fair but i guess none of those were crucial so maybe i'm just kind of remembering this incorrectly no codex shredder was from rtr block right right well so so i meant like when we saw it show up like whatever six months ago it wasn't like there was there wasn't a card that came out kind of in that time frame that suddenly also made it even better. Uh, like RTR was, you know, years ago at this point. So it's kind of like Grishel Brand. Is it technically all the pieces were there three years ago? It just nobody was playing it. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. All right. So what's the final card on our top movers this week? Uh, the final card is Bloodspore Thrynax. I will pause while you look that up. <laughs> it's started. I would, need, it is I would com- need to. Yep, yeah, so did I. It was uh, from Commander 2015, started the week at a dollar, finished at 650. You're picturing some lizardish thing that might involve counters. If you played during Jund era, you're probably going, all right, is that Sprouting Thrynax? Um, this is a four mana 2 2 with Devour 1, 
And each other creature you control enters the battlefield with one one counters on it equal to the number of counters on Bloodsport. So you cast this guy, you eat a couple tokens, make put you know three one one counters on him, and then all your creatures come into play with three more one one counters. Uh, all said and done, I'm a little underwhelmed by this thing, but it certainly hit it out of the ballpark this week from a dollar six fifty, quite a large gain. Um, I would imagine Atraxa is a big part of this. Uh, you know, that's a deck that loves cards that generate lots of counters, and that's exactly what this does. Um, pairs nicely with the doubling season, which we also saw spike. So it is a renaissance of sorts for cards that create counters. Uh, on the price, uh, we've seen cards from these older commander sets just sort of like stick when the price moves. And there's very few copies on TCG Player right now. Uh so, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to think this can at least hang out at five to six. Exactly. So there's, there's a couple of things going on here as well. Diplo Skate has had just about as much hype as Atraxa in the Atraxa builds and um, interacts well with this card. Um, the, there's also the fact that cards in Commander that are assigned rarities, especially if they only ever existed there, those rarities should be completely ignored uh, because putting a colored symbol on a card does not... Equ- is not the equivalent of it having a rarity in the way that we commonly understand it, which means how many copies of this were printed. Because commander decks are printed, um, you know, where everything has the same rarity, one copy of each card in the deck is printed in the pre-constructed deck that you purchase. The only real question is, did it appear in multiple of the decks in the year in question? Has it appeared in multiple years before? Are there other printings that are commonly available? And if the answer to all those questions is no, it's this card is a commander-only card, it's only been printed this this year or a couple of years ago, and it's only seen a single printing, then it may as well be an uber-mythic like an expedition, because that's going to be how many of those copies are actually going to be floating through stores. One of the other features of the commander uh, format is that many playgroups never show up at LGSs at all, especially if they're at an LGS that doesn't particularly support Commander or isn't looking to bring people on site for that purpose. Maybe they have limited space or they don't really see any, you know, they're not really involved in that part of the scene. Um, and it's also just a, a great format to, you know, drag out some beers and, and throw them around the kitchen table with your buddies. And for all of those reasons, the cards in these decks that people purchase don't necessarily circulate. And I think their attrition rates are much higher than for instance, you know, random car rares from Kaladesh um, on the basis that people that play standard are in and out of their LGS all the time, ditto with modern um, and commander is a different scene. And, and so I think that it's, it's a lot easier for a commander deck to be kind of um, retired or forgotten in the closet while they move on to the next big thing. And then years later they drag it out and play it again and in the meantime, no dealer ever got to buy list that card and turn it into money. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be worth thinking about Commander 2016 cards uh, in August of next year. Stuff like Deep Glow Skate and some of the other cards that were printed this year, just as those uh, leave the printers. And we can, you know, I can see I mean, Deep Glow Skate doing something like this next year. I mean, definitely is is on my radar. I mean, although looking at Deep Blue Skate, we all kind of know is is a powerful card. Looking at this, on no planet would I have ever have picked this to spike. <laughs> like, I, I'm not even remotely giving myself even close to enough credit to have figured out that you know once they print Deep Glow Skate one once upon a time down the road, this thing's going to make a move. Um, but here we are in a position where because of the aforementioned attrition situation. Um, there's only like five or six listings left of this. Some of these vendors have up to seven copies, but once these dry up, who knows? This could be a $10, $15 card. Yeah, so there you go. The, the real lesson is that next summer, 
by ev- by all five sealed decks as many as you can as fast as you can because one of the cards is going to increase in price and you want to make sure you have it don't, well, I mean, don't and, leave any stone unturned well i mean and, but but that's the tricky thing right is that a lot of people don't do that because the the value in these decks even and, and this year i think has been um you know reviewed as very positively as these you know the commander 2016 decks are holding a lot of value um there's a lot of cards that are whose prices have been suppressed based on their reprinting in in that set but um, because of both the kind of uh, importance of some of the new cards that were printed only in that set, as well as the likelihood of some of these reprints rebounding again, given sufficient time. Um, you know, th- there's certainly no fear in picking up Commander 2016 decks, especially if you think you're going to play with them. I mean, if you want to pick up the Atraxa deck or the Brea deck, um, you're, not, you're never going to be disappointed and you might get lucky. But come like, you know, next May, you and I are very unlikely to go out and buy a bunch of them unless we see them at like bargain basement prices. Um, you know, 50% off at Walmart or something on an end dial display would certainly catch my attention, but you don't see that too often. And, oh man, that would be a home uh, run. Yeah. I mean, other than that, I'm not going to buy full decks looking for cards. Cause I'm still sitting on a bunch of ones from commander 2014 that never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. Where even, you know, even if a card spikes breaking down the deck still doesn't make it, you know, super worthwhile once you, you parcel it all out. Um, you know, They've been very careful not to be to print things like True Name Nemesis that end up being required staples in either Modern and or Legacy in these decks. So uh, it's very tricky, and you really need to um, be deeply familiar with the format to have an understanding of what might get turned on down the road. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, okay. Uh, so I think that wraps up for segment one. Uh, nice, quick 35-minute segment one. <laughs> We will move on to segment two, our cards to watch. Um, James, you've got uh, several items to talk about this week, so I'm going to let you uh, start start us off. So during the Black Friday sales last week, I was scouting around on various websites looking for good deals and found a particularly tasty one in the gateway promo version of Vault Scourge. Um, this is the foil promo uh, uh, version of this uh, staple of the... Uh, affinity builds from modern um, that doesn't seem likely to see a reprinting because Phyrexian mana is largely broken. Uh, and most of the Phyrexian mana cards <laughs> are not ones that uh, Wizards wants to revisit anytime soon. And so the whole theme is likely to be shelved for quite some time. Uh, the gateway promos were available as low as 25 or 50 cents in bulk bins not too long ago. Um, but the supply has been drying up and there's relatively few left uh, under $4. And I have a feeling that given... Uh, the relative safety of affinity as a uh, an archetype in modern right now, where you know coming out of Eldrazi Winter, it had been one of the only decks that could go toe to toe, and there was some you know discussion about whether one of the key pieces like Mox Opal should be banned to slow it down. Here we are, year year and a half later, um, looking at the format completely differently and talking about how Dredge and Infect are broken, um, which means Affinity is probably going to be around for ages. Uh, and on that basis alone, uh, and the fact that this art is is easily the best of the Vault Scourge art, um, I'm happy to have you know twelve or fourteen copies sitting around that I picked up uh, originally at fifty cents, and then a few more that I picked up during Black Friday week in at around two to two twenty five. Um, you're going to get your copy somewhere around three, and I think you'd be um, pretty likely to hold on to those for six months or a year and come out the other side at a $10 price point. This is a, a card that I have looked at 
It's got to have been five or six times since this was printed. And I keep going, hmm, that seems like it should be more expensive, but whatever. And I just leave it alone. But it, it has always kind of boggled me that the Gateway promo is as cheap as it has been. Yeah, I mean, we've just got to the point where there's just not very much inventory left. I mean, after the next 30 or 40 copies are gone, this will be a $10 card is, is where it looks like it's headed. All right. Um, my card for this week, I have, I have one card for this week, but I guess it, it cascades. Um, I want to talk briefly about the, the card that we got into a bit during segment one, uh, Yehenny's Expense. This is the card that was... Um, accidentally spoiled from aether roll the form on a sweeper that um allows you to cast the spell that costs three or less from your hand for free um it is essentially the same effect as cascade uh it works the same way in terms of the rules so whatever you could do uh excuse me with cascade you can do uh with this card um so my having said that my pick for the week is boom bust this is one of the split cards from planar chaos um one half of it is kind of a funky destroy two land card. But the important thing is that it costs two mana. And the other half of it is just a flat out Armageddon destroys all lands in play. Um, and because of the way that split cards work with these types of effects, uh, you can cast this Yehenny's Expense, give all creatures minus three, minus three, and then Armageddon destroying all lands. So uh, killing almost all the creatures on the yeah, killing almost all the creatures on the board and then Armageddoning is uh, ludicrous. Um, I mean, in in the, the the tradition of Armageddon was always go uh, threat 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 on the first three turns and then Armageddon on turn four and hope that you're ahead. Um, that was that was a strategy, and this essentially does uh, something similar. You know, you get to, to to get on the board with larger creatures in the first few turns and then clean up all the trash and hope that you're ahead. Um, so a boom boss is right around nine dollars right now. Uh, so it's not cheap, cheap, but we are talking about planar chaos. It's, it's the only printing this card's ever seen. It's a split card, so we don't see those very often. Um, I, I don't think it's likely that we see this in modern masters, although, uh, we have not seen any split cards in any, either the modern masters before, which means that we could be setting up to see that mechanic return, um, this coming year in 2017. Um, and I would expect Boom Bust to be part of that if it was. Um, but so long as it dodges that, uh, I think this is a pretty easy double up if it sees any play with Yehenny's expertise. It's also a card that pairs well with that effect. Um, so, you know, something like Restore Balance, as much as I love that card, doesn't pair as well with Yehenny's expertise um, simply because it's sort of doing the same thing. Uh, whereas Boom Bust has, is a really good complement to that type of effect. Um, you can really leverage what's happening when you do that. Uh, so I, li- I like I like Boom Bust from eight or nine dollars up to twenty, uh, you know, maybe even more than twenty, twenty five, thirty, forty, if it becomes like a real component of the metagame. Now, what I want to uh, draw your attention to here is that really Yehani's expertise opens the door on a lot of cards um, in the same way that like printing shardless agent in modern might is suddenly all of these cards uh, that have these uh, low mana costs um, are worth taking a second look at. So the obvious one is like Yehani's expertise into ancestral visions. So minus three, minus three and draw three cards, which is pretty disgusting. Um, you've also have living end. So kill all the creatures and then living end, which is kind of a weird combination. Although you might be able to set up some funky combinations, um, with living end to, to make that work. Um, so wait, you've got, oh, and the red one, you've got wheel of fate. 
you know, you can Meister Meister and Wheel of, uh, Wheel of Fortune, um, which, you know, I'm not exactly sure what you're playing that wants that effect, but it's out there. But you've also got the split cards like Boom Bust. You've got Beck Call, which is actually probably better than Ancestral Vision because you get to cast both halves of it. So it's um, essentially cast Glimpse of Nature and then put four 1-1 birds in the play. So you draw four cards and you get four 1-1 tokens. So like Beck and Call is also a really good card to consider with Yehani's expertise floating around. Um, now that card is, is rare from Gate Crash. There's a lot more copies out there. The prices are in the 50 cents to 75 cents range. So uh, it's, it's a different it's a different stripe of card, but it certainly makes something like that much more appealing. So in general, the, the, the idea here is that Yehani's expertise really gives us a lot to look at across modern um and you should really be keeping your eyes out for some of the effects that this works with because i wouldn't be surprised to see at least one of these pop up in a tier two deck in modern and it also seems like i'm sorry to keep rambling on here but it also seems like the three monocost thing um matters in uh aether revolt we saw multiple cards spoiled all reference three mana which leads me to believe that there may be other opportunities for these cards to be cast for free. I don't know for sure, yeah. uh, but it is worth considering that if they if if this is a one off, it it gives you some options. If this is part of a cycle, or yeah. if there's a couple cards that do something like this, yeah, modern is going to be a whole different scene if we get two or three of these effects. Yeah, I mean, one way to try to shake up modern, and they did this with the Eldrazi clearly, like. Keep in mind, Eldrazi Winter was no mistake. They were trying to push a new deck into modern to liven up the format because they had a pro tour, um, a modern pro tour coming up uh, at the same time that Oath of the Gatewatch uh, was released, and and the result was scary and terrible and upset a lot of people, but was only probably a few design tweaks away from actually being a great success, and and has in fact after the banning that resulted getting rid of Eye of Ugin, um, settled into Eldrazi being a very uh, interesting and dynamic staple of the format. So um, it's entirely possible that in either Revolt they're going to try something similar. As you said, it could be part of a cycle. There's a whole bunch of combos, um, but what really matters here is is not the eventual performance, but the potential for a hype spike. Uh, this, this is exactly the kind of card that drives hype spikes um, as people guess what it's going to work with. A lot of those situations are not going to pan out because this is still a four mana um, sorcery that uh, only only injures certain kinds of decks and only casts certain kinds of cards in certain kinds of situations. But there are so many different ways that it could potentially be abused that it could be enough for Boom and Bust to get there, as well as several of the other cards that you mentioned. Um, what I will say about Boom Bust is that the inventory is not quite low enough to get me to jump on the bandwagon but it's getting pretty close um there might be 40 50 60 copies available across the internet from you know vendors you would know the names of and once you know two or three or four speculators get it into their head that it's something to go after or one of us writes an article that could be enough to push it over the edge and make it a target yeah, and just real quick to, to, to comment on that, uh, Boom Bust did have a price spike a while ago. Um, so this would be a second spike. Yeah, back in the first, oh yeah, January, uh, just about a year ago, um, it went from like $2 to 8 or 10 So we've already seen a spike on that card. Inventory already got sucked up pretty good when that jumped. Um and this is a card that nobody's talked about at all since then, which means that hype is effectively at zero, and that's how many copies are on the market. So if people start talking about it, if somebody writes an article, like there is going to be 
the amount of demand increase is going to be dramatic relative to where it is today. And there's not a hidden inventory to buffer this. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, I mean, just to think through like some Mardu possibilities where you're the, the free thing you're casting is Liliana, the last hope or Liliana of the veil. Um, that's, oh, that's just <laughs> disgusting. Like, let's say they had a, a Tarmogoyf and some smaller creatures, the Aheni's expertise wipes them away, and then the Liliana forces them to sack the big creature that was remaining. Like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or you're playing it in the, in the Nahiri the Harbinger slash Emmerpool shell, where you're just trying to keep things off the board by um, killing a few things early, executing a sweeper that kills one or two things, and then dropping your Nahiri into Emmerpool. Ugh, ugh. You get the Blood Moon off it. You yeah. can... Um... It's also it's also really good against if you're alive on turn four, it just destroys. In fact, I mean, not only does it take out their creatures, it even destroys the ink moth if you do it with boom bust, which is even funnier. <laughs> you get no chance. <laughs> and and keep in mind there were there are already pre existing combos with boom bust in modern like flagstair stones of trocare works really well with the boom side because it says destroy target land you control and target land you don't control, so you can destroy your flagstones, you get a land back, and they lose one for two two mana. Um, that's yeah. never, that's never been a bad play. It's just never really had a shell where that had significant meaning. Um, but anytime you've got multiple angles of attack that, you know, you have a higher degree of synergy that's potentially that comes forward in some new shell. Uh, the bottom line is this may all be terrible. None of these ideas may, may work out, but when you have a lot of ideas being thrown against the wall, hoping they might stick, that's exactly the situation you see a hype spike. So I think that yeah. picks pretty, pretty damn solid. And if you're if you're uh, if you're really into the boom bust train, um, there's a fun little rules interaction where you cast this targeting your own fetch land, and then in response crack the fetch land. And because the card has multiple targets, it will still resolve as many as possible, so you don't lose the land at all, and they still get theirs nuked. That's also gross. All yeah. right, so let's move on to my uh, uh, much longer term pick. Um, and if I had to choose between the two, I think I like Boom Bust a lot better than uh, my pick here. But Bring to Light is down to $0.25. Cents. Um, this is a tutor that allows you to do multiple busted things. Uh, it's got open-ended synergy with future printings. Um, what counts against it is that it is a five-mana uh, sorcery that was printed in Battle for Zendikar. Um, and, and is not a major uh, player in either Standard or Modern, although it has made appearances in both. Um, entirely possible it becomes a thing further down the road. Um, I think it's going to spend at least a couple years down in the bulk rare zone. And then one day, you know, in 2019 or 2020 or something, we're going to look up and it's going to be a $5 card. Um, perhaps more importantly, foils are also available around the $3 range, which is extremely low for a card that could break out in modern as a two or three of down the road in a deck where it matters. Um, so I've been slowly stashing these away during Black Friday where I could get an additional discount off the 25 cents. Um, I pocketed away another 20 copies or so. Uh, this is the kind of thing I love to have in my long range bulk specs binder um, because you only have to hit on, you know, one out of every five of these and you still easily make your money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I agree. I especially like foils. I think I'm, I'm, I like that idea the most, um, simply because that seems like the type of inventory that would get drained before 
non-foils. Uh, but I agree the buy-in is so much higher on that. I mean, if you're actually paying 25 cents on Bring the Lights, uh, you know, a $4, if the card jumps to $4, it's a 1500% increase. So the profit margins there are pretty outrageous if you can, uh, if you can pull that off. And there is, there is a break point where percentages no longer matter. And it's really about real amounts since you got to factor in your hourly wage, not as a percentage, but as a real amount. But even still, um, you know, quarter cards that turn into multi-dollar cards are, <laughs> are kind of the heart and soul of magic speculation. So take that for what yeah. you will. Yeah. So the other thing that caught my eye this week is that um, despite foil sets of Eldritch Moon um, acquirable through Magic Online uh, via the Redemption Program, which for Eldritch Moon goes until, I believe, October of 2017... Um, which is actually longer. It's the last set that gets uh, a, a normal redemption cycle. As of Kaladesh, uh, you get significantly less time. For instance, Kaladesh is uh, off redemption, or is not guaranteed. Yeah, it's off redemption, full stop, uh, June 7th, as is Aether Revolt. Um, so we'll talk about that at a future date, because there's all sorts of things to, to discuss about that situation. But Eldritch Moon, um, despite having until next October... Is sitting at around two hundred and fifty dollars once all is said and done to get your hands on a foil set. Now, normally this is something I wouldn't, I would tell you to stay far, far away from. But I started adding up <laughs> the number of foils in this set that are likely to be worth money down the road, and just got astronomical numbers as to where this could head. This has Liliana, The Last Hope, Tamio. It has Collective Brutality, Eldritch Evolution, Spell Queller, Selfless Spirit, Grim Flare. Emrakul the Promised End, Gisela, Thalia, Bedlam Reveler, and at least five to ten additional foils that could be a big deal in various formats down the road, many of which are already relevant or are likely to become relevant in modern. Um, that is really, really deep chops, and the current foil prices on many of those cards are pretty reasonable. Um, only a few, like Liliana, are, will potentially head south at rotation. Many of the others, like Grim Flayer, Selfless Spirit, and Spell Queller, are likely to stay high for a long time, as is Collective Brutality Foils and Emrakul and Gisela. I mean, it, it's a very, very deep set, folks. I haven't talked about a set like the, in, in terms like this since Magic Origins, which I think is, is, is a similar set. Um, and uh, before that, probably not as far back as uh, the original Innistrad. Um, so I think it's very possible that if you sat on a foil set for say two to three years, it could end up being a $400 item that you paid 250 for. Um, you know, if you want the quick flip and you're looking to get in and get out, this isn't really for you. Um, but if you're into long-term, you know, foil set plays, which granted have a much smaller target market, um, but do have solid upside, this might be something worth looking at. This is interesting. I mean, I, this is not something that would typically land on my radar. Um, not, it's just not something I, I keep an eye on, but this is a good point. Eldritch Moon has consistently surprised me with just how much is going on in that set. Um, and I mean, you, you named all the cards, so I won't run through them again, but um, every time I just keep coming back to that set because there's just so much going on there. Uh, you know, that and like Oath of the Gatewatch. So um yeah, I think I think this is is appealing. My my only hesitation is I'm I'm nervous about getting involved with Moto, but that might just be because I'm not as familiar with the platform as you are. Um, you know, I, I don't quite know what to expect out of flashbacks or reprints or that type of thing. Uh, 
in a way that I'm, I'm more comfortable predicting that type of thing on paper. Um, right. So, that's, so, so even be, still, I, I do like that. So to be clear, all we're really talking about here is redeeming on Moto into a paper set and then holding it. So the only real oh, question, the, okay. the only real question is whether you believe the online set might fall. Um, Eldritch Moon is at an unusually high level online, um, and in and in paper, um, you might be surprised to hear that um, whereas Battle for Zendikar is now worth fifty seven percent less than it was during its opening week, and Shadows or Innistrad is worth forty seven percent less. Eldritch Moon is a mere fifteen percent less which means it is holding value better than almost any set in the last five years. Um, wow. uh, because of all the extremely deep, modern, relevant card pool that we just discussed. Um, and on that basis, uh, the, the fact that the online foils are, are relatively in sync with their value in real life, this is really predicated on being able to pull a whole, the full set of foils together, knowing full well that the top... 10 or 15 foils in the set justify the $250 price tag, and then hoping that either some of those foils keep climbing, like Emrakul, the Promised End, becomes a $100 foil one day, or um, some of the other cards that were kind of tier two in the set eventually take off, something like an Eldritch Evolution, and that foil hits 30 or 40 instead of, you know, five or 10. Um, if you want to figure out if this is a good play, you got to do some math, Um but I'll be interested to see what people come back with because so far from my math, it looks you know like it could be a reasonable play. Now, did you look to see, I mean, it's just, it says here that it costs about $250 to buy the full MTGO foil set. Did you compare that with the cost of what it, those same cards are in paper right now? Yeah. So the point I was making, you know, a bit ago was that um, it only takes the first 10 or 15 key foils in the set to get to that level. Oh, okay. So, so if you were to try list. and do this in paper, it would cost you much more than $250. Oh, yeah, yeah. Significantly more. Because the thing okay. is that a lot okay. of the a lot of the foils on Magic Online, if they're not played heavily in standard, are automatically worthless and cost like five cents. Whereas even a foil common at your local LGS is probably a dollar to three dollars. So um, most of what you're getting is free. Um and it's really a question of how much value you think the paper set bleeds in foil based on how many of the important cards that are making up the 250 you're paying are likely to uh, revert course and get cheaper as they head out the door for standard rotation. What's got me interested is that most of the cards in question, whether or not they're good in standard, something like Spell Queller, for instance, is also looks like it has a home in modern and it's just going to be an all-time great, uh, you know, just a, a good card in general. Um, and as such, the foils are likely to hold most of their value. Now, if you agree with that, this is pretty good. Um, if you don't, then maybe it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's certainly appealing. Uh, I, I can't argue with that. Um, I don't know. I have to, I have to look at this because uh, this is this is definitely worth thinking about. Um, okay. I have one more quick card I wanted to talk about. It came to me while I was, uh, while I was looking... Um, some stuff we were recording, and that is uh, Martin Stromgald. This is like not an official pick of the week. Um, I, you know, in full disclosure, I own a bunch of copies of this. I bought them a while ago. I was playing EDH with some friends. Somebody cast it, and I'm like, that's oh, got a lot of words on it. Just tell me what it does. And then it, he did what it does, and I was like, oh, damn. Uh, we all died to it. So 
Uh, the short version of this is a four mana one one that makes your team humongous when you swing. Um, and it's reserve list. It's Ice Age reserve list. There are very few near mint copies out there right now. Um, there are 12 uh, TCG player near mint copies in the two to three dollar range. Um, there is like a couple on ABU, a couple, a couple on Star City, uh, one on Channel Fireball. So supply on this is pretty low across the board. There's a lot more played copies on TCG Player, maybe a page's worth, um, you know, 50-ish vendors at, at a variety of copies each. Um, but, you know, very almost no near mint copies, a handful of played copies. The cards card is very powerful i think the only reason it's not more expensive is more people don't know about it so again i own a bunch of copies i'm not trying to pump and dump you guys here um but i'm just letting you know that this is something that i'm coming i came back to just to check up on it and i'm seeing that it this is probably pretty close to selling out and kind of restocking higher and as a reserve list card it's just like well sure you know why not yeah and, and fair to point out that this is maybe the, only in the top like 600 cards in commander not the top 50 or top 100 um, the overall demand profile is going to be relatively low, but as Travis pointed out, there's basically none of these lying around. Um, and again, nobody's going out and popping boxes of Ice Age from 20 years ago trying to find $5 cards. No, and, and you know, I, I do think for what it's worth that this card would be a lot more popular if people knew about it. I just think that there just nobody knows that this card exists. Um, you know, doubling season is easy to see, you, your friends have it. Um, and easy to understand when you look at it. This card is a lot more messy. So, you know, will that prove to permanently prohibit uh, the price? I don't know. Uh, but it, it certainly does a lot. Does a lot. Does a lot of work. All right, let's move on to our third segment of the week. Uh, we can knock this one off pretty quickly. I think we can probably, you know, just bypass the WMC Unified Modern Tournament. I mean, there was some very interesting gameplay there, and I enjoyed watching those games. But because the decks uh, are extremely uh, a very weird format where... Um, no, you know, three members of uh, each team had to play three different decks with no cards overlapping, a format none of us ever play. Um, it's pretty unlikely to have any financial impl- implications. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree that there's, you're not going to look at that and go, oh, this deck did well at this format at this event, which means it's really good. It can be interesting to see what kind of stuff comes out of it. Um, just to see, you know, if somebody stumbled upon something clever or what have you. Uh, but yeah, it's, although it is funny that you're like, oh, we can we might as well skip this one event, the WMCQ or the, you know, the the WMC. And I'm like, oh, because when you started to say we can might as well skip this one event, I thought you were going to say the uh, the, the legacy tournament, the legacy one, because who cares? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, it's interesting. Grand Prix Chiba is worth pointing out because I've been coming down pretty hard on legacy saying, you know, it's, it's likely uh, a dying format, a, a format that is in decline. Um, because I think dying is the wrong word. Dying me in, implies no one's playing it, and I don't think that's the case. I think that many of the people that own legacy decks and play legacy on a weekly basis will continue to do so. I think that it's a format that's going to have a lot of trouble marshalling fresh blood because it's not going to get the support from Wizards it needs to make cards available um, or break the reserve list so that a, 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 f- a rush of players can upgrade from modern to legacy and get a whole new experience. Um, instead, I think it's going to be relocated in increasingly to, you know, the, the side stage instead of the center stage. Um, whereas, you know, GP New Jersey a few years back was a friggin' big deal and felt like a, a centerpiece of the magic universe. Um, GP Chiba, uh, is, is a, a pretty big deal on the basis that it's one of the only tournaments I think we're going to see this year that has 2,500 players playing legacy. Yeah, probably the only one. Yeah. 
So, I mean, uh, not really a lot to see beyond that because the, the decks in question were all pretty much known quantities. We had uh, Sneak and Show, two copies of Miracles, another Sneak and Show, Death and Taxes, Elves, Miracles again, and Storm. Um, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, as it were, for Legacy. Um, nothing really jumped out at me. I mean, there was a couple of interesting card selections here and there. Um, but, you know, nothing that seemed to say, you know, this is going to create a spike. And that's really the problem with Legacy from an MTG Finance perspective right now is that uh, the local play patterns, the qualifier patterns, the, you know, potential for it to show up on camera at a, a, a major GP or Pro Tour are so few and far between at this point. I mean, it's never going to be a Pro Tour tournament again, um, you know, other than, you know, show, showing up as a portion of Worlds or something. Um, another tournament where the metagame is so specialized, it hardly matters from a finance perspective. Uh, yeah. That, you know, leg- legacy cards just aren't holding my attention. I mean, if you can convince me that a legacy-related card is also iconic slash collectible based on its history, its its role as a part of the history of the game, then I still think that there is, there is potentially money to be made there. But in terms of, you know, should you be buying more Scalding turns because people often run them in legacy? I think the ander- answer is a resounding no. Yeah, like, should you buy Counterbalance because Miracles is clearly the best deck? Yeah. It's like, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a good, an excellent example, because if, if a deck like Miracles, which is as good in Legacy as Infect is right now in Modern, can't drive the price of a card, despite, you know, putting two or three copies in the top eight for the umpteenth tournament in a row, then I don't think we need to be talking about Legacy much. Yeah, there's just, there's nothing there. I it really, it's, it's, yeah, there's not much more to be said. Um, so, so let's move on to our fourth topic of the week, um, wherein we are going to talk about a format that very much matters, um, both uh, from the retail side of the game um, and from corporate's perspective, uh, certainly matters from a finance perspective in terms of what we should be focusing on, um, and I think matters to many, many players, and, and that's the this current state of standard and what might be done about it. Um, can you uh, give us kind of a brief overview as to where you know people people feel standard is at right now? Sure. So either you're playing uh, blue white mid range, or you're playing black green delirium, or you're playing Eternal, the new card game that just launched that LC worked on. Um, <laughs> uh, red green Marvel uh, and various Marvel decks have been popping up, but more so on on. on moto lately but the the short version here is that standard has become uh as black and white i mean you're on one of two strategies maybe the third one um but it, it's you know it's got to be what 70 or 80 percent of the format is two decks which is really bad for standard uh and it, it's pretty clear that wizards is frustrated or at least is kind of flailing around trying to figure out uh how to make standard better um i mean they've been polling people on Twitter and asking for feedback in a variety of fashions and so forth. So they're, they're trying to figure out how to come the grip, how to, how to fix what is essentially what probably one of the worst standards we've had, maybe since mono black, I would guess. Probably yeah. that. Probably yeah, we were talking times. about this off camera that I, I, I was comparing this to the Theros block cycle where we had mono blue devotion versus mono black devotion. And, and people were playing, you know, Thassa Merfolk versus uh, Black pack, pack Rat decks and uh, Grey Merchant of Asphodel, and how incredibly boring that became. And I feel like this this standard season is headed in the same direction. I, I think it's worth pointing out that this standard has been caught in the crunch a little bit because some some folks' dedication to the format was probably set up 
based on their understanding that standard was on an 18 month cycle instead of a 24 month cycle. Um, and the switch back to the more player friendly rotation schedule um, may uh, have an impact given a few more months. So if Ether Revolt throws a bunch of new decks into the mix and everybody, you know, it, it has rippled through the system that everybody understands they get longer to play with, then maybe a commitment to purchasing standard cards uh, to a greater degree and experimenting with more decks um, will turn it, you know, turn standard around and it'll become a very interesting format again. Um, important to note that standard, you know, standard has gone through this many times, you know, mono blue versus mono black devotion is just one example. There have been other binary, um, uh, versions of the format throughout history. It's a very tough thing to create perfect standard formats that have, you know, six to eight viable decks and, and a lot of innovation that develops throughout the season, um, based on, you know, undiscovered card interactions or new ideas, um, it, it takes it, it is the pinnacle of great game design when they hit the nail on the head and really get it right. And I feel like in the last couple of years since, you know, in the interim between the Theros problem and, you know, the current situation, we actually did get quite a few seasons of, of great play. I think that the season um, that started with Cons of Tarkir and ended with Dragons and into Origins was an excellent time to be playing Standard. There was a bunch of busted things going on. There was a ton of interplay. Um, the format was very complex. It rewarded great play. The downside was the decks were very expensive. Um, and that didn't please a lot of people. But for those people that could afford it, um, it was still uh, a, a very skill-testing and fun format. Now, all of that being said, I did have this idea the other day that I wanted to run by you, which is that one of the things Wizards could be doing um, uh, would be to print additional cards in between major set releases. So if I was to to play this out in the in the... Uh, in, ter in terms of how it would work with the current block, um, what I'm proposing is that in between Kaladesh and Aether Revolt, let's say on a monthly basis, there would be a game day style event on, say, a Saturday at every LGS uh, in the country that would release additional cards that were not known in the set up until that point. So you're basically doing interim releases inside the block um, that are only available at, L at the LGS. And my premise here is that, A, I don't think it really matters that the set is the same, has the same cards between, say, Walmart and the LGS, because the kind of casual player that only knows to pick up magic cards to fool around at the kitchen table doesn't really pay attention to the LGS, doesn't really care about what's going on there, and whether or not they one day trip over it and come into the fold is neither here nor there. Um, whereas the LGS crowd very much cares about the freshness of the format. Um, if you think about when product sells, it's during um, you know the hype around spoilers. Spoilers drive sales is the reality. And any lull in between spoilers um, tends to result in you know lulls in sales. So um, if you look at how many products they've been releasing over the course of uh, the last year or so, one of the fingers we've been pointing is that there's just too many overall products that are taking big chunks of money out of the player base and making it hard to focus, making it hard to commit to, you know, uh, a, 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 the, all of the formats simultaneously that you might be playing at your LGS. 
one of the reasons I think my idea might be one of the, a, a solution they could investigate further is that it doesn't require the same level of internal uh, expense as creating a whole new product and set that they've got to promote all over the place, even if it was only LGS level, like say the Modern Masters or Eternal Master sets. This is really just taking the kind of the leftover cards that you know, we're left on the cutting room floor for a given set like Kaladesh, where they almost certainly have 10, 20, 30, 40 cards that came out of the, that fell out of the design file because they didn't have room for them. Some of them make their way into Ether Revolt, but there's still some sitting around that aren't going to see print and Rosewater saves them up for 10 years from now when they return to the plane. Um, I think that they could take some of those cards and they could put them out in booster packs that you get at these game days and, um, you get to either play them in a specialized draft that day as like an extra pack in the draft, or you just get them for showing up and playing in the event. And then those cards become legal the following week. And lo and behold, some of the new sub themes that didn't quite have what it took to be tier one, maybe they get enough fresh blood that the the format, you know, continues to evolve and people stay interested. Okay. So we're talking about adding new cards to the standard environment mid-season, correct? Yep. Let's say on a monthly basis in between the, the releases of major sets. So maybe okay. three times between Kaladesh and Aether Revolt, you show up on a Saturday at your LGS and you get a single booster pack of new cards, but there's like no chaff. Like the, the one that's aimed at Constructed is cards that are clearly playable and standard and the pack let's say that there's a draft event as well those cards are just interesting and limited mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my so my my I, I think it's a really nifty idea first of all uh i love the idea of kind of a a constantly shifting metagame um from a player's perspective i guess my biggest concern may be that Let's say I start investing in building black, green, delirium. I've decided that's what I'm going to play. So I work towards that point. And then one of these packs incidentally contains a card that just completely destroys my deck. Like either renders it invalid or makes some other deck so good that nobody bothers playing black, green, delirium, whatever. Um, So now I've been cut out of this deck being good. Uh, and it feels kind of like I had my legs chopped out from underneath me. You kind of still have that problem now with the way metagames evolve, but at least you know that like if Black Cream Delirium is good, it's still going to be at least playable for the three months. You know, if you're playing at the Grand Prix level, it's not quite this, you know, they're off weeks for sure, but at least you feel like you're in the same ballpark. Um, whereas this could just completely knock your deck out of the format essentially entirely, which would concern me a little bit. Um, without the a other doubt, half the- of Hmm. So just to, to speak to that, I think without a doubt that that's one of the risks. Um, and I think that that's why it would be important for them to know going in to the design of the set that they were going to be doing this. It's the kind of thing they would have to plan like a year to two years out um, to make sure it was going to work. But I think once they knew it was coming, it would be relatively easy for them to say, okay, what are the sub themes that were somewhat underdeveloped? So they could take something like red, white vehicles, which was very good. But other than Copter, probably not Tier 1 and Standard, right? Like, without Copter, Red White Vehicles, I think everybody can agree, probably wasn't a deck at all. Um, and they could, say, take three or four sub-themes, and they could identify those themes. And the booster pack that you get is, you know, 15 cards aimed at making that theme playable. Or maybe it's, you know, less. Maybe it doesn't need to be 15. Maybe it's only five or something. 
and you you get one pack for showing up and additional packs for you know winning and the idea is you know here are some tier two decks that we're going to reinforce and we knew ahead of time that they might not be tier one up front but we're going to put some pieces into play in the middle and see what it does to shake up the metagame and some of those will be successes and some of them will still be failures but at least there is fresh blood and there's hype and there's a reason to show up at your lgs and buy some more product and you know pay to show up to attend some more tournaments okay yeah that's not that's not unfair i like the idea of using it to bolster kind of secondary um themes uh journey into nyx and the theros enchantment matters block certainly comes to mind as having that been um meaningful useful uh to push some of those cards um the the other component of this that jumps out off the page at me is i'd be concerned about about card availability um first of all at a at a, at a just within the country within the united states the cost of some of these cards could get really outrageous you know you think about for instance the new planeswalker decks that just started getting printed with kaladesh where you have two planeswalkers and a handful of cards that exist only in those but are legal and standard so there's like that four mana instant that does four damage, I think. And there's a Chandra and a Nyssa. And neither one of those are playable in standard. Or like neither one of them are good enough to see playing standard. But uh, who knows what's going to happen when Wizards messes up and accidentally makes one of them very good. Um, these sort of packs would run that same risk. Except this time they're trying to aim the cards for constructed. So every time they kind of go, they shoot two, you know, they, they kind of go over to over the mark um there and you know if they put a smuggler's copter in one of these packs i mean yeah. it's it's yeah. a 60 dollars standard card 70 dollars standard card it's, sure. it's just gonna be brutal so super, i think it's really cool like, hmm, what would you say this is a super valid point um yeah they, and i think one of the ways that you might mitigate that is that you you abandon the normal rarities um and or you print them in quantity so maybe the packs have full play sets um, and it's a subscription-based model. So uh, up front at the start of standard, you commit to whatever they're going to call this program. They're going to call it enhanced standard or something. Um, that's a terrible name. So let's just presume that they found a good one. Um, but what it means is you pay up front, say, $199.99. And what that gets you is a booster box and a draft and a pre-release kit and one of these booster packs uh, once a month for three months. And what the LGS gets is, you know, that chunk of revenue up front that they can then use to fuel their buy list process for that season. Um, what Wizards gets and, and shares with the LGS is uh, some foreknowledge of the uh, commitment uh, of the player to show up and participate in standard. So even if standards going in, in a bad direction and people start complaining about, you know, its binary nature as they are now, they you know, the counter response will just by default become, well, yeah, but we're getting new cards in, in three weeks or two weeks or a week. Um, so relax. You know, you, you're going to get a chance to play your Black Red Vampires Madness deck because inevitably you're going to get a couple of cards um, three weeks from now that are going to, you know, bring that deck up to a, a, a new power level or at least give you a reason to be exploring it. And that kind of hype can drive um, sales. So absolutely a smuggler's copter printed in small quantity that you that only like five percent of participating standard players could get a hold of is a terrible idea but there are ways in terms of how many copies you print of of making sure that supply uh is balanced well with demand 
Yeah, you know, if if there was another avenue, if it was, oh, these cards show up in the packs if you go play FNM, and you can also get them uh, by, uh, I, I, I don't know. If you play 10 drafts on Moto, we'll send you one. Uh, or if you go buy, I don't know, some My Little Pony set, you get a code to redeem for a pack, you know, like, you know, some of that cross-brand type of thing. If you put alternate venues in there, um for card access that would help tremendously uh and if you know if you put them on moto and you could redeem them type of thing so then you're still getting the benefit of adding new cards to standard as time rolls on uh and kind of refreshing things while also um not you know not running the risk of putting a smuggler's copter into one of these packs that would help of course that diminishes the whole point of this which is driving players to the store for fnm specifically so that would be a difficult line to walk my i I suspect that one of the the, one of the major issues here is that really what you have to do is you have to make sure there are enough copies out there uh for players to actually be able to get them and the, the end goal is to kind of keep changing standard but it's like wizards is probably sitting there going well is three months not short enough like it's already pretty quick do you need it to refresh that much faster it almost seems like the problem that you're trying to solve with this which is that the format can get stale is better solved by just designing the set better such that the metagame evolves rather than trying to kind of like uh force the evolution by adding cards that'll you know, over and over again. So, so that's a super fair comment. And if that was, uh, if they were capable capable of doing that reliably season after season, um, and had demonstrated that, then I, I think all concerned parties would just agree that that's just as you said, uh, that's the ideal. The problem is what the, what the LGSs are facing right now is uncertainty as to at what point can they expect standard players to come back? Because the interviews I conducted informally with, with LGS owners on Twitter and Facebook and via my you know network of contacts by email over the last couple of weeks suggest that there's been a real drop-off, a real significant drop-off. And I think that if we look at the promo programs um, that have been announced over the last couple of months, we can probably trace that back to being, you know, that Wizards has known about that drop-off based on DCI number driven um, LGS tournament reporting for maybe as as much as six to nine months, um, and yet they still haven't solved the problem. So, one of the key benefits to everybody um, of the method that I'm proposing is that there's commitment up front by the players to participate in standard for a season, and there's some pretty good analogs for that, like. When you sign up to play on your local hockey team, you know, in or after work or a volleyball team or a softball team or whatever, you don't, you, people generally frown upon you showing up, you know, when you feel like it. Most teams want people to, you know, be there week after week with, you know, rare exceptions. And, you know, when you sign your kids up for, you know, spring soccer, they're, they're committing to play 12 weeks in a row, um, you know, minus a week off or family vacation or whatever. So I don't think it's a weird, uh, a weird formula that people would have trouble getting used to. The other thing is that um, I think it's really important to point out that in this model, you it wouldn't be that or nothing. Like, it's not like you can't show up and play on the second game day if you didn't commit to the full package up front. There would just be a nominal fee to show up for that tournament, and you would still get the pack, you know, for the second, re- second of three releases. You just missed the first one, and you're going to have to go buy those singles if you want to fool around with them. If you If you didn't participate the first time around or you didn't make it to the pre-release you still got these two other opportunities to to get really cool cards um i can certainly tell you that talking to lgs owners pre-releases 
bar none, generate the biggest hype, the most sales, and bring in the most money uh, to the store during that you know that two week period, the week before and after the release of a new set. And mm-hmm. I think that you can gen- Magic players love new cards so much that especially if you bolted down the um, the previews, like really dampened the spoilers since the subsets are so small and made it so you kind of had to show up to have first look at the product, I think you would get really good turnout for that, um, especially if you kept it flexible in terms of to what degree participation um, was possible, at what prices, and there was kind of a bonus reward in, in terms of a package deal if you committed to the full season, a box up front and so forth. Um, I, I think you can sell that, especially in certain demographics. Now, here's a 10. Go ahead and comment. I've got a tangential topic. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I, I'm I'm not comfortable how with uh, with using, um, what's the best way to put this? restriction to knowledge and information as a strategy um trying to make it harder for players to know things like the cards in the coming set just doesn't isn't going to work right like we we've decided that so uh that that one aspect of the whole topic i just think is not not a great idea but what i'm what i'm saying is that like say they're putting out four card packs various sub themes and they each have four copies of 10 cards or something so they're 40 card packs um, they, the spoilers are limited to say one card per pack ahead of time. The full spoiler is not made available until it's compiled after everybody has collated the cards on site. I mean, uh, I, I think it's a nifty idea. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's feasible. Like, I think that between people leaking online, getting them ahead of time, stores getting their packs, you know, early enough to be able to hand them out at the event, they're going to post them online as soon as they get them. Um, you know, anyone who's going to be interested in doing going for those cards is going to know what's in them before they show up. To, to some extent, that's probably true. The uh, there's another big, big problem that we we talked about off camera, which is how you handle international. Um, this program, I think, is probably feasible uh, once you iron out some of the bugs uh, in the U.S. I have no idea how this plays out in a place like Slovenia or Greece or one of these smaller markets overseas that definitely has a dedicated player base, but they number in the hundreds, not the thousands. There might be three or four LGSs total in Bulgaria. Um, and, you know, they they play with Russian cards over there. And will these bonus packs even appear in all of the regular languages? Um, can the printing presses be run efficiently to print these in a way that makes sense? I mean, I have to assume based on the treasure chests that such a thing is possible and economically feasible, because otherwise they wouldn't be doing it with the with the with the new thing that they're trying during the holiday season this year. Um, but the language thing is definitely an issue because you don't, the last thing you want is the Greek national team showing up at some pro tour and not being able to play a specific deck because they didn't have access to the cards locally or the cards went through the roof um, due to regional availability issues. So granted all of that would need to be sorted and figured out. Um, I like the idea of just banning other countries from playing magic. <laughs> that's right so likely to work so here's a tentative issue even if you don't believe in any of that other stuff let me hit you with this one and i can't even believe i have to bring this up uh, or that it's it it seems like a fresh idea because this should have been done a million years ago and once we talk about it i think we'll all agree that it's bonkers we're not already doing this how is it possible that with a game that long before the internet was really even a thing was tracking us online with a dci number 
and that the DCI number is used to register with events on site. That the DCI number doesn't track those events and our purchases on site so that wizards can have a complete uh, picture of our activities in Magic, the t- both the events we play in and the and our purchasing patterns, so that they can better adapt to and react to the the what's happening on the ground in the LGS and reward us for providing them with that additional information by giving us points that matter. Like when was the last time you logged in to see your quote unquote planeswalker points? Oh, it's been quite some time now. And and the reason for that is they don't matter. They're completely irrelevant. Once they took they took away our like our our rating, like our standard our limited and constructed ratings and so that we wouldn't feel bad about having bad ratings. Um they they never replaced it with which would have been common sense, which is to replace it with a rewards program to say your DCI number is how we track the money you spend at the LGS, how many drafts you enter, how many pre-release events you play in, how many Saturday showdowns you play in, um, how many booster boxes and associated products you purchased. And we're going to turn that into a point system that could then be used to provide you with rewards in the form of uh, exclusive cards or additional promos or discounts on future events or whatever you want to do, including potentially my crazy idea about releasing interim sets in between uh, major releases. Yeah, that is sort of insane that they have this number that you use every single time you sit down to play Magic, but they never involved it with you buying Magic cards. Yeah, I mean, they, they know exactly how many tournaments I've played in since 1994, but they have no idea how much money I've spent on Magic. They, they, can prob- they probably have some internal modeling that infers one from the other, but you can't tell me that there's not tremendous value um, in the millions to understanding to the letter what I've spent at my local LGS. I mean, it still doesn't tell them what I'm doing it at Walmart, but some of that data can be gleaned in other ways anyway. I mean, one of the big reasons programs like Air Miles exist is because they sell a lot of that data to corporate partners. So um, some of the big box data probably already flows into their hands. And I'm surprised that we don't have a better system of collecting and collecting da- more data from players at the LGS level and then using that to better service the LGSs, make sure that they have the tools they need to get things done and, you know, use it as a way of dragging us into the those stores with, you know, intermittent promotions that are custom tailored to our purchasing patterns. Man, wouldn't that just be... Uh such a good way to drive players to their local stores too. Like you can't put in your DCI number to earn these better planeswalker points at Walmart, but you can give them to your local hobby shop who will record that as your purchase and give you the bonuses there. What so LGS, then it will, what LGS owner is not going to love that, right? That yeah. Like it's going to drive players to buy at their local store instead of Walmart. Cause the local store would give them credit for it. And, and you can't tell me that the experience at the LGS isn't so much richer than if you're just playing at the kitchen table. That I mean, kitchen ta- if kitchen table magic was all there was, I would not still be playing magic. It is the the all of the fringe benefits from being able to get a good cappuccino at face to face games to the quality of the personalities at that particular store to the prices on singles at various stores that I have frequented. Um, you know, the, the community that has grown up around various formats like Commander and Tiny Leaders at various points and now Frontier here in Toronto um, that has me spending money there and not at big box stores on the game. So the richness of that experience has to lead to greater sales per player. Like I had, 
I guess what I'm really saying is the average revenue per unit that Wizards earns from an LGS visiting player versus a non-LGS visiting player has to be an order of magnitude different. Mm-hmm. You know, a guy a mm-hmm. guy who goes to his LGS every Friday is probably spending a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a year on Magic, and the Walmart casual guy might be spending a couple hundred. Yeah, if even that much. Right. So, I mean, just some ideas that I thought I would throw out into the airwaves uh, for people to pick apart and fool around with. And maybe some of the, you know, the best components there make their way into the right uh, heads over at Wizards. And we see some development on some of these programs because, you know, Standard is has been the heart and soul of Magic for a long time. And it would be a real shame if they didn't find a way to fix this by either revolt. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that this is, tends to be cyclical, so I'm not like too worried about it. But it does seem like there are some options they could put in the place that would maybe uh, stand to shore up the weaker formats when they land. I mean, and the scary thing is, right? Like, we're the standard decks now versus during Konzatark um, uh, here are like a half to a third the price because we don't have fetch lands, and there's a bunch of there's a bunch of cards. Uh, busted mythics and rares you don't need to make decks so it's it's pretty scary that when standard the the cost of playing standard is down the the participation is down i mean that's mm-hmm. very scary yeah um and could easily be only one set away from being corrected still i i think there's more they can be doing to support the lgs's that is, that goes beyond these rando treasure chests and and promo cards that they've been putting out uh, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Um, okay, well, it is. Uh, we're at 90 minutes here, so we should probably wrap this up. Um, Sounds good. Where can people find you online, Travis? So much for a quick episode. <laughs> uh, I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday on MTG Price, uh, The Watchtower, and I do the webcast MT- or, uh, Cartel Aristocrats. How about yourself? You guys can always find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com, so long as my child doesn't yell at me, and so far she's being quiet and beautiful over in the corner there, so we're good. Um, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the biz, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 44. We're getting close. Uh, Christmas and a year and whatever else. Um, so congratulations again on your child, James. Uh, thank you, thank and you. I will see you next week. Thanks, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.